Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Paul Schaefer. You know, he's Paul Schaefer. He was the stunningly dressed band leader on David Letterman's Late Show. He co-founded the Blues Brothers. Besides all that, Paul Schaefer's a songwriter, too. I mean, he's not the most successful songwriter, but he did co-write one huge smash monster hit. The Weather Girls... It's Raining Men. Well, I see each of us, you know, Wayne Cochran wrote that last kiss. Charlie Chaplin wrote Smile. <laughs> and I, yes, and I wrote the anthem. Uh, thank you for bringing it up. Uh, I feel like men. I was reading a newspaper profile of you that mentioned that that was your cell phone ringtone. Does it remain your cell phone yes, ringtone? Yes, yes, it is my ring. So every time I ring, I make four pennies. <laughs> and my accountant is thrilled about it. <laughs> Shameless. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with Paul Schaefer about its rating men and his work on SNL, too, and, and how weird it feels when a thing like The Late Show, something that you worked on every day for half your life, suddenly comes to an end. Yes, it, it was a big change, for sure. When that dis- I mean, it was one's whole life. It was every day. It was five shows a week, week in, week out. You always knew where you were going to be. It sort of saved one from reality sometimes, you know. This funeral's very sad, but I gotta go to work. Bye, everybody. And I'll also talk with the artist and children's book author, Javaka Steptoe. His book, Radiant Child, the story of young artist Jean-Michel Basquiat, won the Caldecott Medal, 2017. He grew up in an artistic family. He decided that at a young age, he wanted to be an artist, too. The idea didn't always get the best reception. And I would go to friends' houses when I was younger, They would all ask me, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I would say, an artist. And then they would say to me, how are you going to make a living? And I really thought that was a a really strange question because my parents were feeding me and (laughs) buying me clothes, and we, we were making a living. Plus, Louis Theroux, a man who's lived with white supremacists, hung out for weeks in a brothel in Nevada, and most recently tapped into the world of ex scientologists tells us, about the craziest day of his entire career. And finally, I just saw John Wick 2. You know, the movie about assassins, Keanu Reeves. I haven't even seen John Wick 1. Doesn't matter. I'll tell you why John Wick 2 is the best $6 I've spent this month. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is Paul Schaefer. I couldn't be more thrilled to have him on the show. You know Paul Schaefer, of course, from his work on The David Letterman Show. He was kind of the perfect late show band leader. He's funny, flamboyant, and an absolute total pro who could learn a new song in five minutes flat. Before he joined The Late Show, he worked on Saturday Night Live's band. He played piano for Bill Murray's lounge singer character, played keyboards in the Blues Brothers, and he has the honor of being the first person to ever have dropped an F-bomb on SNL. He joined up with Letterman in 1982. His back and forth with Dave gave him a sidekick role similar to Ed McMahon on The Tonight Show. He and Letterman complimented each other perfectly. Paul took a little time off after The Late Show ended in 2015. Now he's back to work. Schaefer and The Late Show's World's Most Dangerous Band just released their first album in almost 25 years. He's gearing up for a tour that starts next month. Let's take a listen to one of the singles off of the album. It features the great Bill Murray. It's called Happy Street. Hey, Bill. Bill. Hey, Bill Murray. Hey, wait up. Wait up. Let me catch up to you. Hey, Polly. Nice running into you out on the street. Last person I thought I'd ever run into. It's great to see you. Well, great to see you. How you doing? Right now, I'm just loving the way that I'm walking, baby. When life is feeling sweet, it has a certain beat. Everything's groovy when you're walking down Happy Street. 
Paul Shaver. Welcome to Bullseye. It is so exciting to have you on the program. Well, I'm very, very, so happy to be here. Thank you very much, and Paul, thanks for opening with that tune. Of course. I am worried right now, and I'll tell you why. It's because I feel like I lack the capacity to express to my audience in words the grandness of your eyewear right now. Ah, well, we we should be in 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 stereo and we should be in video. <laughs> but yes, I have a little collection of of eyeglasses going. Yes, we I, need bare minimum quadraphonic sound. I wore to yeah, express at least surround sound and a four point one thing, five point one. These Mix. ones, these ones are like translucent. They're like flat, translucent blue. Uh huh. And there's cinemascope. Oh, excellent! You know, you can see uh, out of the corners of your eyes. Yeah, they're curved. They got everything going. I'm... I need something. I don't have any hair. I have to have <laughs> some some way to compensate for that. Paul, you've seen my beard, right? I love your beard. Yes, I love it. <laughs> Speaking of compensating for yes. uh, hair absence, um. Uh, I am glad to know that you did not leave the, let's say, entertaining clothing and accessory choices on television. That you are walking the streets of America right now making the same kinds of bold choices. I The same times of Yes. I um <laughs> No, I said bold choices, but yeah, go ahead. I'm still in show business, absolutely, you know. And this is a day that to dress up, I dressed up. For you, just like the actresses used to dress up for Letterman on the panel, you know, I have worn this outfit for you, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, it's resonating with you. You ended up becoming the musical director of a production of Godspell in, in Toronto. Toronto. Yes. How did you get that job? This was when you were still in your young in your twenties. Yes, and I was, you know, I was during that first year. I, I, I graduated from a, a University of Toronto, and I said to my parents, you know, let me take a year off my studies and try music and see. You know, if I'm still starving at the end of a year, I'll go back to school. One of those deals we make with our parents, you know. So during that year, I did everything from bar mitzvahs and weddings, uh, topless bars where they used to have live musicians, and playing for people's auditions. I would, for 20 bucks, you could come over and we would learn a song together in my living room, and then I'd go and uh, play for you at your audition. And a gal I knew was going to audition for Godspell. I learned a song with her. And I went to play uh, for her audition. And Stephen Schwartz, the composer, who is, has Wicked running uh, for years and years on Broadway now, he's legendary, he was doing the final auditions. He said, I want to talk to that piano player. And he said, can you play for the rest of the auditions? I don't, uh, you know more songs than this guy. You, you could tell already, you know, I was more of a rock player. And this was a rock musical. And I played the rest of the auditions for him. And then at the end of the day, he said, can you get a band together and conduct this show? And I'm telling you, it was like, <laughs> Lana Turner at Schwab's. I, I never, I was discovered, like in Hollywood, you know. It's funny because, in a way, it set the course of your entire career. And in another way, I mean, what an odd job to get as your as your first gig. <laughs> like, you're, you know, when you're, when you're thinking, like, maybe you're going to be in somebody's touring band or you're going to be a jazz musician or you're going to be something like that, and then all of a sudden you're the musical director of a Broadway well, show. Well, you're absolutely right. It was a left, uh, it was a left turn. Uh, things just happened. The show, the music in the show happened to be perfect for me. It was very much influenced by uh, Elton John and uh, Lauren Nero, and it was piano-based this score, I learned how to say score, and you know, at that time, and I don't know, I could play his stuff, Stephen Schwartz's stuff. I, I related to it, and he ended up being the guy to bring me into the U.S. too, and got me a visa to play for him on Broadway in uh, '74 in the Magic Show. There I was in the pit in Broadway. They talk about a left turn. I didn't never thought I would be doing that. When you moved to New York, you ended up in this sort of related group of performers uh, who were putting together the National Lampoon records and playing music with the National Lampoon, uh, which was a substantial portion of the group of people that ended up being Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Did you feel like when you were playing on those National Lampoon records that you were doing something that was actually maybe important? Somehow, I had heard one of their early records. The, the National Lampoon magazine had a radio hour, and then they put out records. And while I was still in Toronto, I heard some of their satirical stuff, especially an ad, a parody of an ad. Bob Dylan 
with a direct response ad, write in now and receive greatest protest hits, greatest protest hits of the 60s. Dylan being very commercial. Plus, you got my own Masters of War if you order now, you know. And I just thought, man, that is the hippest thing. That's the kind of thing I wanted. I just related to that humor so much. And before I knew it, you know, because of the people that I had met in Godspell and then... Uh, the Second City nightclub came to Toronto right around that time, raided our Godspell show, and hired a lot of the people for their uh, Toronto version of Second City uh, improv nightclub show. Uh, I was hanging there incessantly, learning all the time, laughing. Um, and when I got to New York, it didn't take me very long to find my way to that National Lampoon, start making those records with them. Uh, Billy Murray's older brother, Brian Doyle Murray, was a, uh, he was responsible. He was one of the people that came up from Chicago to show them how to do Second City there, and we became fast friends. He introduced me when we, around when we got to New York. I met Belushi right away, and I met Bill Murray right away, and I started working at the National Lampoon, where I really belonged. We, we made a record together called uh, Goodbye Pop, all of us, uh, sort of, uh, you know, goodbye to the rock era or something. We were a little prescient, I guess, uh, <laughs> at that time, because rock, rock is all dying a horrible death right now. But anyway, though, this was back in 74. And uh, Billy Murray and I wrote a song together that Gilda was in on the writing of two and his brother called Kung Fu Christmas. Everything in rhythm and blues in the early 70s was Kung Fu, as you remember. So this was like, what if there was a Christmas song by the stylistics and Billy sang it on the on the radio hour he was he and i were doing music even way back then i think we featured kung fu christmas on a past holiday special of oh, this very I love show it. thank you <laughs> it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is paul schaefer he's the former late show band leader co-founder of the blues brothers and the co-writer of the disco smash it's raining men i want to play a clip from uh late night on which you led the band for the length of the show this is the soul singer from Macon, Georgia, Wayne Cochran. Yes. And I think that there will be some people in our audience who remember Wayne Cochran well, but for those who don't, maybe you could describe who Wayne Cochran was. He had a regional, a regional success as a, as a recording artist and R&B performer in Miami. Um, and he was known as the white James Brown because he did an act similar to James Brown, and he had his totally white hair teased up into a huge pompadour. I mean an insanely huge... Yeah, like, he, if you think James Brown in that legendary uh, haircut that he passed on through the generations to Al Sharpton had a big pompadour, like, Wayne Cochran's was probably 50% bigger. But it was like cotton candy. There was so much air in it. It was just yeah. teased up. There was really nothing to it. But what a show. I've got pulled here uh, the first song that he performed on an appearance in 1982, which was actually I Can't Turn You Loose. Oh, okay. Legendary. And one of the things about Wayne Cochran is that, like James Brown, not only did he have James Brown's outrageous hair, but he also could really get down, and he especially could do the move that I do not know the name of that James Brown was legendary for doing in the early mid-'60s, which was lifting one foot up off the floor and sliding left and right with the other foot. I don't know what that's called either, but uh, I'm still trying to e trying to perfect it. Even with white hair and a much smaller bouffant in 1982, he was Wayne Cochran was still doing a little bit. Let's let's take a listen to Paul Schaefer, my guest, playing alongside the White Knight of Soul, Wayne Cochran. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Wayne Cochran. <laughs> You know, he sounds good. Uh, the, uh, more melody in his voice than I, than I remembered. He's still <laughs> around, you know. He is a preacher now. 
Oh, yeah. Yes, he's turned to God, found God. And I guess, uh, you know, in a case like that, he, he was preaching anyway in his act. Yeah, well, I mean, I think even in 1982, he was talking about his preaching. There's a, there's a moment in the interview with Letterman, I was just watching it earlier today, where uh, he, he says to him, you know, one of the great things about coming to visit you, Dave, is I get to sing again because I've mostly been doing preaching and Bible teaching. Ah, there you go. Yeah, so he was doing it already. And did you know he wrote... Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? No, I the didn't Lord know that. The Lord took her away from me. Yes, yeah, so somehow he was the composer of that song. Okay, well, speaking of somehow he was the composer of that song, I can't let you go without talking about the fact that uh, you co-wrote the hit song It's Raining Men for the Weather Girls. Well, I see each of us, you know, Wayne Cochran wrote that last kiss. Charlie Chaplin wrote Smile. <laughs> and I, yes, and I wrote the anthem. Uh, thank you for bringing it up, uh, I feel like men. I was reading a newspaper profile of you that mentioned that that was your cell phone ringtone. Does it remain your cell yes, phone ringtone? Yes, yes, it is my ring. So every time I ring, I make four pennies, <laughs> and my accountant is thrilled about it. <laughs> let's let's listen to the Weather Girls singing "It's Raining Men." The Weather Girls had been part of Sylvester's act, right? The legendary disco soul singer Sylvester. That is correct. And he's the guy saying, you make me feel mighty real. Yes, they backed him up, these two girls, and they were known as two tons of fun. And they really were about 300 pounds each. They were very huge women. Yeah. So um, And could really blow. I mean, they could sing. You can hear it. I mean, just on what we just heard, yeah, they were phenomenal gospel-oriented singers. Um, Paul Jabbar was the name of my co-writer on this song, It's Raining Men. Did he, like, come over to your house and say, Paul, we're writing a disco smash? Pretty much. You know, he, I had done arrangements for him. Ron Dante was the name of a Barry Manilow's producer at the time. Ron, I used to do charts for Ron. Ron said, I'm producing this guy, Paul Jabbar, and he had a song called One Man Ain't Enough. So he was already going in that direction, you can see. And we, we made a record. Nothing happened with that record, but we became friends. Paul went on to win an Oscar for the uh, song Last Dance for Donna Summer. And when he came back from Hollywood, he called me and he said, you know, you wrote such great charts for me. I want to write a song together with you. And I got a title for Donna Summer. How, what do you think about It's Raining Men? And I said, I'll be right over. And I went over to his apartment and we wrote this song in an, in an afternoon. He had all the lyrics pretty much ready to go. He just needed somebody like me to put music to it, which I did. And we, we came up with that tune. Donna hated it. She didn't want to do it when she heard it. All the great divas that Paul was on a first-name basis had all their numbers. Barbara, no, hated. Patti LaBelle, I won't do it. Paul knew it was a hit anyway. Made the track, didn't even know who was going to sing it. And then finally uh, came up with this idea of asking the two tons of fun. And they did a bang-up job of the vocal, and they were only too happy to become the Weather Girls when the record took off, and they started doing appearances. Well, I mean, I think what's great about the song, and what's great about it particularly as being your hit song. Like, if you're going to be a guy that wrote a hit, that wrote one hit song, yeah. it's a great one to be. Because, number one, the song is a blast every time. Like, there's no... Love it. Thank you. There's no situation where It's Raining Men isn't a fun song to have come on. Thank you. Okay, that's number Love one. It. Thank you. And number two, it is so distinctly, like, it is such a, it is such the apotheosis of this kind of grand, uh, even slightly campy, although it's grounded by the fact that uh, it is both a great song and being sung exceptionally well, um, a disco aesthetic, like, it is... Um, you know, not not unlike Sylvester himself, who was absolutely masterful at that aesthetic, like did wonderful things with this world. Um, it's a grand and ridiculous song. And the fact that it's ridiculous doesn't get in the way of its grandness. It feeds into its grandness. You know, it has something in common with it, with the stuff that we used to do for the Lampoon parody and stuff and making comedic points. But you always want the music to be great, you know. The joke is not that the music is bad. The music got to be great, and then listen to the lyrics and see what they're really saying. 
So uh, a, a little of that, I guess, can be heard in It's Raining Men, too, and the, the record uh, is fantastic. Vocal performance is fantastic. And, you know, this was uh, this became a gay anthem. It was written and, and recorded uh, in the dark ages before there was such a thing as gay rights and the things that are happening now, the wonderful things that are happening, the support that the LGBTQ community... None of this... To ha was around back then. We we had to kind of lay this meaning between the lines and get laughs for it. And that's why, you know, and it was sung by a woman, but, uh, you know, the secret underground knew that it was a song, you know, about men for men. And we had a lot of fun doing that. You wouldn't write a song like that today, you know. You could be much more open about your message. That time we... We were secretive about our matches, but we had a lot of fun doing it and making it hurt. How did you end up leading the band on The Letterman Show? Um, I had done a, a Saturday Night Live for the first five years. Um, and two years later, I got a call, come in and meet Dave. He's getting a show. Uh, I knew who he was, uh, not so familiar with him. Uh, came in for a meeting. Uh, we hit it off right away. Uh, he said, what kind of a band would you have? And I said, you know, I'd love to have a, 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 a quartet that played great soul music and R&B music like I love and played instrumental versions of those tunes. And Dave said, well, you know, I've always thought of myself as the Wayne Cochran of comedy anyway. <laughs> and I mean, how did he pull that reference out? As Nobody outside of Miami knows who this guy is. But when he said that... I'm the Wayne Cochran of comedy. This should work out. I said, this is a guy I want to work for. And luckily, he ended up hiring. Well, I mean, w one of the things about David Letterman is that, you know, there's this axis on which your career turns, which is that you are so deeply plugged into this amazing comedy world of uh, the mid and late 1970s, uh, which was this the world of SCTV, the National Lampoon, the Second City, National Lampoon, Saturday Night Live axis. Yeah. That changed comedy entirely in that time. David Letterman, however... We called it the axis of evil. Yeah. <laughs> David Letterman, a whole other thing. Like a, com a completely different comedy aesthetic, a completely different... And he also changed comedy completely forever. And... One of the things that's most amazing to me about your career is that you were able to fit so comfortably into both of these completely different things. Well, um, I may be wrong, but I kind of think that David uh, took the Johnny Carson uh, prototype of talk show and, and added some Saturday Night Live uh, influence to it and, be, and came up with his own wacky blend. And, you know, he, when I came in for that first meeting, he said, I, saw, I used to see you on SNL, especially that stuff you would do with Bill Murray, the lounge singer stuff. He, he noticed that and, and commented on that, mentioned that. So he was paying attention to this new comedy, wanting to combine it, you know, with Carson, who was his idol, of course. And he ended up doing it, and I was, I was fortunate enough to go along for the ride. What did you see as being your job on the show? Um, it, well, it developed, uh, but uh, by the end of it, it certainly was to back up Dave in whatever manner was required, whether it was a musical cue, pulling something out of, out of a hat, you know, and, and playing a song that relates, or just speaking to him and giving him the kind of verbal feedback that he needed. Uh, I just had to be there paying attention. If I wasn't, he uncannily would always notice. Paul, are you... Uh, <laughs> You're doing another show over there? You know, I'd be talking to the band, telling them what next song. I'd have to do that and still not keep my eye off him, on him, you know, take my eyes off him. Because every night it was different. Nothing was rehearsed. He was liable to call on me at any time, and I just had to be. So my job was to be ready for anything. I'll continue my conversation with Paul Schaefer after a short break. We'll talk about that one time back in 2001 when he really, really hurt Julia Roberts' feelings. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, here at Bullseye, we're participating in this thing called Tripod. It's a hashtag in a movement to try and convince people to check out podcasts. One time, uh, my old producer, Nick, said to me, Do you know what it's like to try and explain to your dentist what a podcast is? That's your job. Explain to your dentist what a podcast is. You already listen to podcasts. You probably like them. So convince your dentist to check them out. 
Convince your mom to check them out. Convince your little sister to check them out. Convince your football coach to check them out. How about a personal recommendation or something on social media, a link? Maybe show them how to open the podcast app in their phone, whatever. And then brag about it with the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. Get it? Tripod. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter. When you own a business, if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. Now you can. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 200-plus job sites with one single click and have the highest chance of finding that perfect candidate. Plus, you can instantly be matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes. Businesses of all sizes have used ZipRecruiter. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash first. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Paul Schaefer. He was the band leader on David Letterman's Late Show for over 30 years. His new album, recorded with his band, The World's Most Dangerous Band, was released just last week. I'm going to play uh, another clip from The Late Show. Uh, This a slightly more infamous one. Okay. It's uh, Julia Roberts is a guest on the program. And uh, Julia Roberts was Julia Robertsing around. One of my hits. Thank you. Yes. I'm always glad glad to serve. And uh, Julia Roberts just being America's favorite movie star. Yes. And basically, Dave and the audience throw the mic over to you for a question. So, Julia... Uh, you getting laid these days? <laughs> wasn't, that, wasn't that what I was I thought that's what I was supposed to say. Wrong with you? I thought that was the question. Isn't that what, what you meant? What is the matter? I thought that's what... Are you I don't nuts? know. I thought... Are you just nuts? Now she's going... Like, he, he was going to... As if he was going to hit me. She's holding him back. I remember holding back his arm. Don't hurt her. You know, she had been, she was coming on the show and she had just broken up with a, a high-profile actor. They had had a relationship. Everybody knew about it. And maybe they were broken up. And Dave, Dave at the top of the show saying, I'm kind of nervous. I don't know whether to ask her about it. Do you mention it? Do you keep on going? He says, well, you ask her. Do me a favor. You ask her when she comes up. <laughs> She's still seeing that guy. He set you up. He said, not only he set me up, but he gave me all that time to think about it. What am I going to say? So I had that time, and I, and I came up with that idea to say, how am I going to ask her in an entertaining way? And, yeah, he sure did set me up. <laughs> I mean, it is a magical television moment. There's no doubt about that. And you also, I mean, like in listening to it and watching the clip, like you uh, you manage the impact with absolute aplomb. Like you're out there. Uh, well, then you're just trying to, you know, surf over the response <laughs> and try to, you know, keep playing the scene. It's almost, it's, it was really like an improv scene. Uh, it, you know, he didn't take it that seriously, and, and I didn't either. So now you have the audience going crazy. You have him coming towards me and, and Julia holding it back and me saying, I thought that's what you wanted. You know, we were just, just trying to melt the laughs, really. Are you happy to be... Uh touring musician again or did your life to have the like level of intensity of a daily television program and then have it not there yes it, it was a big change for sure when that I mean it was one's whole life it was every day it was five shows a week week in week out you always knew where you were going to be it sort of saved one from reality sometimes you know this funeral's very sad, but I got to go to work. Bye, everybody. You know, it was one of those. And now not to have that and not to have a musical outlet. Every day I was playing with the best band in the land, you know, my own band. Really terrific. And, yes, I was a little bit at loose ends when it ended. And it was uh, t- wonderful when I got that call from legendary uh, record exec Seymour Stein saying, you want to get back into the record business and make a record for me? And I started playing again and going into the studio, and uh, it really cheered me up. It was just like going to college and giving up my, my rock band and then realizing how unhappy I was and getting back into it. Sort of the same thing happened again. It, it really was a clear sign. It's not time for you to slow down. You're not happy that way. I'm very happy to have something to do. And this idea of going out in front of an audience and entertaining, well, that's the true I mean, talk about show business. You know, that's that separates the men from the boys. Can you go out and do 
an hour and a half, you know, and keep people's attention and, and so that when they leave the theater, they said, man, that we had a great time. What a challenge. That's my next challenge. And it's just as, just as exciting as anything else I've ever done in my career. I'm incredibly excited and looking forward to doing it. Paul Shaver, I'm so grateful that you came to this show. I can't, I can't tell you what your work has meant to me. I'm very sincerely, well, that's I'm great, very grateful. That you I'm took the humbled time. and and uh, really so happy to hear you say that. And I just, you know, as a cat who got lucky for sure and was at the right place at the right time, but it's been great to be at this place with you. I'm very lucky to have been here too. Thanks for having me. Let's go out on a song from Paul Shaver and the World's Most Dangerous Band's brand new record that Paul is singing lead vocals on. It's called Just Because. Just because you left and said goodbye Paul Schaefer. His new album, Paul Schaefer and the World's Most Dangerous Band, is out now. He starts touring next month. You can find out about tickets and show dates on our website, MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, Javaka Steptoe. He's an artist and a children's book author. His latest book is an illustrated biography of a young Jean-Michel Basquiat. It's called Radiant Child. It's a beautiful, compassionate story about one of the greatest artists of our time. The book just won the 2017 Caldecott Medal, basically the Pulitzer of the children's book world. For Javaka, kids' books run in the family. His father was John Steptoe, who won two Caldecotts himself. Javaka was even a character in one of his dad's books. Radiant Child has very quickly become a favorite with my kids. I'm thrilled to have Javaka Steptoe joining me now. Javaka, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. So I I wonder what appealed to you so strongly about Jean-Michel Basquiat, as, not just as an artist, but also as a subject that, that you would want to spend five years with him making this book. He just was a part of my life on a lot of different levels. In the beginning when I was, I guess, becoming an artist, as opposed to someone who, you know, would just sit and, and draw comics. He was a part of my development and the imagery that he would use in his paintings would be the same or would come from the same places that my imagery would come from. As artists, I think we spend a lot of time in our heads and we think about our past and the things that have happened to us as we have lived our lives. And the things that we find curious or the things that we find painful, those are the things that we focus on in our artwork. And so he came from a place where I came from, you know. So a lot of the imagery and a lot of the things that he was talking about were things that were part of my life experience and not just... Uh, oh, this is in a museum, let me see what it's about. There's there's also the cultural experience of being black in America, and black in America at different points of time is, is different, and it's, and it's always evolving and changing. And so to see him at that particular time on the cover of the New York Times art section, you know, that's, that's really exciting. Um, someone who is not that far from my age, who is speaking about similar things and, and having similar thoughts as me, and, you know, achieving. You know, that's, that's really great to see. You know, there's something about his work that is so vivid and connects so directly. Um, and, and that's not true for... You know, that's not true for a lot of even acclaimed fine artists, especially, you know, if you don't have a ton of cultural context around the work or, or whatever, right? That with Basquiat's work, you look at it and you feel it. And that seems very special to me, that the vividness of the feeling that you get from looking at his pictures. Right. I think he's, he, he definitely speaks to that emotional part of us. 
and you know you feel it in in the way that he applies his medium whether it's um the paint or the oil pastel pencils like you you feel joy you feel anger you feel sadness you feel all of these different emotions but i i think the thing that really touches people is that he speaks about struggle and struggle is something that we all go through you know we we all have these big juggernauts that that seem unconquerable and he speaks he speaks about that he speaks about industry he's rooting for the average person the average joe he's like the underdog you know fighting for everyone and through his artwork we're all rooting for him and i i, I think that's that's one of the things that that touches everyone that everyone can understand you know my mom uh sent me the announcement that your book had won the Caldecott. <laughs> nice. And she said, this has to be him, right? And she was referring to a book that your father wrote. Your father was also an acclaimed uh, children's book writer and illustrator. Yes. That you were a character in <laughs> called Special Best Words. Yes. That was maybe my favorite book as a child. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean... Very sincerely. And I mean, like, am I going to say definitely more than in the night kitchen? No, I can't make that promise. But okay. we'll but... call it definitely top three, right? Okay. And um, Special Best Words is a story about you and your sister. And I had no idea until my mom sent me this email that you and your sister were real people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Um but it's a story about you and your sister and um and you, your dad or a dad taking care of you and um it's a real plain story and i w- and i've been thinking as i read that book with my own kids who are the right age to read that book what it was about it that connected so deeply with me when i was a kid and i think that it is rare to read a story about a single parent right uh where single parenthood is kind of honored but not foregrounded right and it's also uh it's also a story where the setting and context are identifiably urban and you know lower middle class middle class in a way that again is not about overcoming poverty or something like that right but simply about the reality of just day-to-day life. And, you know, those were circumstances in my own life at the time when I was that age. And I think that there weren't other stories like that. Right. And I'm white. And that lack of representation that I felt has to be dramatically different for kids who aren't white, for whom 85% of the lead characters in stories or 90% of the lead characters in stories that they may read are the same color as them. Right. I, I wonder if you were thinking about representation when you made this book and and especially in the way that, uh, you know, in some ways you are representing Basquiat's life but also representing your own life as a young artist. One of one of the, the things um, my father would tell me of, about his reason for creating children's books is because it's important for you to see yourself in the books that you read in the TV shows that you watch to see yourself in all its diversity. I definitely think about representation when three to 4% of children's books that are published every year have non-white characters as their, you know, main protagonist. Um, That has to be something that I I think about. And I think a lot about it. I try to choose characters that are interesting, that are not saying the same story over and over again. You know, like, I'm going to make a new basketball book. I'm going (laughs) to make a new slavery book or a a new civil rights struggle book that tells the same story in the same way. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Javaka Steptoe, 
author of the Caldecott-winning children's book, Radiant Child, the story of young artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. You're uh, a little bit younger than Basquiat was when he was alive. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, he's close enough to you in age that he must have felt touchable. You know what I mean? Like, like he must have felt relevant in the way that, like, in the way that, like, a, a 12-year-old girl feels like she could date the new kids on the block even though they're all 26. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Um, I wonder what he meant to you personally as a kid. It was like a family member making it because he, he, he was me. He opened up the possibilities of what I could achieve as a fine artist, as someone who wants to talk from a particular perspective. Both of your parents were artists. Yes. What did you think about art as a life and as a job when you were old enough to think about art as a life and as a job? I I think I really grew up spoiled (laughs) (laughs) because... My parents didn't have traditional jobs, and they were making a living, and I would go to friends' houses when I was younger, and they would all ask me, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I would say, an artist. And then they would say to me, how are you going to make a living? And I really thought that was a, a really strange question because my parents were feeding me and... <laughs> buying me clothes and you know I we didn't have the fabulous life of, of a billionaire or a millionaire but we were making a living we were getting all of the different things that that we needed we had an understanding of culture we were being educated we ate every day I didn't have that struggle were there times in your life where you would have preferred not to have been introduced so often as your parents' child and especially your father's child? Um, yes. <laughs> and I, I think that that was more so when I was young. I, I, I feel like um, in terms of my artistry, I feel like I'm myself. Though people ask me, you know, are you the son of John Steptoe? Um... I I think that what I'm doing is strong enough to, to stand on its own. There were definitely times, and I would say more times, where there was a, a, a lot of pride and a lot of wisdom and a lot of good difference. You know, like I, I felt like I was being fed in a way that other people weren't fed, and it allowed me to see the world in a different way. How old were you when your father died? I was 17. That's a time when a lot of kids, um, and especially boys, are in conflict with their dads. Right. I mean, I know I was. (laughs) Yeah. I love you, Dad. Um, (laughs) What were the circumstances? He had passed away from AIDS. And the year before he passed away, we spent... Uh, a lot of time talking with each other and sharing things about his his life with me and and just being like a a really loving person you know it's 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 hard seeing a parent a role model becoming weak and not having the strength and and tenacity and knowing that you know that they're going to pass away it's kind of a particularly scary thing to watch as well. Yeah. And I, I remember I had family friends who passed away from AIDS a- around the time that your father did. And um, that weakening is really hard. Yeah. Yeah, you you notice um, just just small things about their appearance and their mannerisms. And there's and is basically nothing you could do. How did it change the way that you thought about your father when he passed away and when he wasn't there anymore? 
Um, I don't know if it changed the way I thought about him, but I know that I had a lot to think about. So 17 is not necessarily the age that it's about fighting with your father, but it's it's more like at 17, you're thinking about becoming a man. And so a lot of times what happens is we fight with our father because, you know, we're a man. So we don't have to listen to what they're saying anymore. And, you know, we have dominion over our life now because I, I didn't have the opportunity to express manhood in that way. I, I thought a lot about what it meant to be a man and, you know, what are the responsibilities and roles of manhood? How can I become as, as great as my father? I just think about how old he was when, when he passed away and how old he was, how mature he was, how responsible he was. And then I compare it to, like, how responsible I am right now and how mature I am right now. <laughs> um, and, I mean, uh, of course, this is all, you know, through the, through the lens of a, of a son watching, like, the greatest person in the world. But I know that he—I don't nec- necessarily want to say sacrifice, but I know that he did a lot. There was a great effort put into me and my sister growing up and, and becoming stable, well-adjusted individuals. Part of your book is about Jean-Michel Basquiat's mother's mental illness. Mm-hmm. That he, you know, he sort of lost her when he was a kid. Yeah. You had similar experiences with your mother when you were a young man. Yes. What was it about that experience that you wanted to represent for kids? I I don't think it's so much that I wanted to represent. Maybe I just wanted to just open a space to allow them to normalize their experience because mental illness is is not something that we necessarily talk about regularly and i i also think that maybe i ju- i just want wanted to say that if it's a situation where you knew a person and they changed maybe there's something that you could hold on to in that relationship you know like it doesn't have to be something that you just throw away what are the things that you hold on to about your mom? I guess um, my mom was, she was like a rock. No matter what, she she made sure that we had we had food and we had a place to, to, to stay. And just not like the bare basics, but we were always in, in some sort of art program. And whether it was the Museum of Natural History, Saturday Children's Program... <laughs> She really thought about us. I mean, one of the things that you do as a children's writer is take your book to kids. Mm -hmm. And I know that it has a big effect on kids because I drove my daughter home from school yesterday. She's five in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And an author who had came to her class had blown her mind. (laughs) Like, it was all she could talk about. Right. And usually she doesn't have that much to say about school, right? And I wonder what in this book you've found has connected and, and opened the hearts of the kids that you interact with directly. I guess uh, you, you could say it's like a buffet. You know, you take what you want from it and you connect with it wherever your experiences allow you to connect with it. I heard one story. Someone asks for a copy of Radiant Child because the, the picture on the cover looked like them. And then, you know, you have another connection because I'm Haitian or I'm Puerto Rican. You have a, another connection because I'm an artist. You have a, another connection because someone that I know or maybe I am dealing with mental illness. Or maybe just like Basquiat, <laughs> you know? 
I guess any way you you make a connection is is great for me. Well, Javaka, thank you so much for coming on the show and and being so open-hearted about answering my questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you for having me here, Jesse. Javaka Steptoe's book just won the Caldecott Medal. It's called Radiant Child, the Story of Young Artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. Even more Bullseye coming up after a short break. Louis Theroux, the documentary host from Weird Weekends, tells us about the craziest day in his entire career. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Blue Headphones. For 20 years, your favorite artists have used Blue microphones in the studio. Now, Blue's unique headphone design brings the sonic truth to your ears so you can hear more in your favorite music. Find out why Esquire magazine called them the perfect headphones. Visit the store at bluedesigns.com and use coupon code NPR2017 for a special price. Blue, hear more. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out NPR's Hidden Brain, hosted by Shankar Vedantam. Hidden Brain uses science and storytelling to help you understand the world around you and yourself. Wonder why it's so hard to change your best friend's political views? Feeling like you're in a bit of a rut and you need to get unstuck? Hidden Brain can help you with those questions and plenty of others. Find it now on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. All right, back to the show. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll hear about the craziest day of Louis Theroux's career in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about Pop Rocket. It's our sister show here at MaximumFun.org. Every week, Pop Rocket brings you a fascinating and funny conversation about all things pop culture with a panel that you will love to love. It's all hosted by Guy Branham. He's a comedian. He's also the host of True TV's upcoming talk show, The Game Show. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse, this week we're getting ready for Max Fun Drive, and we are talking about our favorite sapphic television programs. Yes, all the TV shows for ladies who love to love the lovely ladies. Check it out. <laughs> that sounds awesome, guy. It's called Pop Rocket. Grab it wherever you download your podcast. You will not regret it. I look forward to listening every week. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Here at Bullseye, we do a semi-regular segment called The Craziest Day of My Entire Career. And if you look at the career of someone like Louis Theroux, it is, honestly, hard to pick one day. Louis, of course, is a documentary host. He's British. A lot of his work's aired in the U.K., but he focuses a lot of his filmmaking here in the U.S. He's traveled the United States in search of our weirdest subcultures. He's interviewed cult leaders, TV pitchmen, brought a film crew to a swinger party. In all of it, Theroux is wide-eyed, inquisitive, and down to do pretty much anything. He just released his first-ever feature film. It's called My Scientology Movie. In it, Louis takes a look at one of the most secretive religious organizations in the world. He talks with former members. He travels to their headquarters in the California desert. He reenacts some of the most infamous moments in the church's history. And along the way, he gets stopped and confronted several times by people with the church. Did you want to see the permit? One is from England. I know he's a BBC reporter. I have no idea his name. Louis. Um, Louis? Louis. Okay, the road's closed, you're trespassing, and you need to leave. Apparently, it's a, it's a public road. No, it isn't. And the we have a... Is, no, you don't. But can I just show you the permit? No, it isn't. It isn't a public road. Look, it's Catherine, trespassing. Catherine, Catherine. You're whoa, not that Whoa, whoa, whoa you're assaulting you see me. That thing? It says road... When we asked Louis about the craziest day of his career, though, he took us back to the late 90s when he was working on his show, Weird Weekends. Ran the BBC in the UK and on Bravo here in the States. Uh, a heads up for listeners, what you're about to hear is a little bit graphic. It's got some content that might not sit well if you've got a weak stomach. Anyway, can't say we didn't warn you. Here's Louis Theroux with the craziest day of his entire career. The day I'm thinking of right now was during filming of a documentary I did about pro wrestling. And it was the late 90s. Pro wrestling was very popular at the time. The group to which I'd gained admission for my documentary was called WCW, World Championship Wrestling. Now, the thing about pro wrestling is that they, um, obviously, they're very athletic. 
and they are they you know they're like stuntmen and they sustain huge injuries and they contort themselves and they run around and they whack each other with chairs and throw each other out of the ring and all of that is tremendously physical and they incur injuries all the time so i don't think it takes anything away from them in terms of their masculinity and their sort of athletic prowess to acknowledge that what they do is not strictly speaking competitive i don't even feel, i feel a bit weird even mentioning that on kind of on air because my kids still sort of believe in pro wrestling and I'm, maybe there's some grown men and women out there who still kind of take it all at face value I arrived at the um, the place in Florida where the WCW wrestlers were doing their um, doing their thing, and I, I, afterwards I went up to one of the trainers who was called Sarge, this sort of bullet-headed guy with a neck that was thicker than his head, and uh, he was tearing down the ring, and I and I said to him, um, "Wow, that was amazing! You know, it was really sort of impressive the prow- physical prowess. You know, I was sort of ladling on uh, the, the compliments." Um, and, but I said, but and how do you decide uh, what you do in the ring? One thing I still don't totally understand is um, to what extent they know what's going to happen in the ring when they come out into the ring. Do you know what I mean? No, I don't. Well, in other words, I understand like there's an enormous amount of athletic and acrobatic ability and tremendous strength and, and, and that type of thing. But as far as what goes on in the ring itself, yeah. To what? How, how does that? How does that work? I don't have any idea. Listen, guys, I am real busy. Oh, okay. I knew it was the forbidden question, and there's a famous piece of footage in which Richard Belzer is is interviewing Hulk Hogan, and Hulk Hogan puts him in what's called a sleeping hold and, and more or less knocks him unconscious as a result of what he viewed as Belzer asking the wrong questions. And there's another bit in which John Stossel, the reporter, is whacked on the ear. I think this is fake. You think it's fake? Huh? What the hell's wrong with you? That's open and I think rendered partially deaf by a wrestler. So there is a track record of wrestlers taking against uh, journalists and making their feelings felt physically. So a few weeks later, I go to the uh, WCW Power Plant Training Center where the wrestlers are trained. The power plant was uh, in Atlanta. It was basically a large hangar-like training facility, like a gym uh, filled with exercise equipment. And and there were maybe 20 or so aspiring up-and-coming wrestlers in there, basically just training their guts out, as they do day in, day out. And the concept for the for the for the bit that I was doing for that bit of the documentary was that I would arrive in my shorts and t-shirt and maybe kind of do some token participation, you know, run around a little bit and quite evidently not be up to their standards. And it would make some visual make for some visual material. Quite quickly I, I it became evident that I wasn't in any way up to the physical standards of the guys I was among. You know, they are at peak fitness. And there was this almost um, alpha male primate energy in the room. You know, a lot of chanting, a lot of physicality. Eight, down, nine, down, ten. There's only about 400 squats behind. Get up. I, 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 I kind of ran out of puff quite early on I was like you know I, I, I've, I think I've done enough I think we've got our shots as, as we say in TV and, and then it became clear that Sarge had no intention of, of letting me stop he started saying like get down on the floor and, and, and crawl like a cockroach say sir I'm a dying cockroach sir sir I'm a dying cockroach and I thought this is kind of weird but I started doing it I, I wanted to sort of win him over and show you know goodwill and I suppose part of how I do my documentaries as well is by committing myself like I don't want to pop into the trailer I mean I don't have a trailer but my figurative trailer at the first sign of emotional or physical discomfort I ran off into the there was a little backstage a dressing room area where the locker room where the wrestlers got changed and he kind of pulled me out by the t-shirt no way get your ass in the ring and then I, I tried to take a sip of water with a little paper cup and then he slapped the cup out of my hand. You see how ridiculous some questions you ask yes. me down there yes, are? Yes, I do, yes. Did you see why I am the Sarge, huh? Yes. Do you have any questions about our business now that you want to know? Look at these guys. And I remember thinking, wow, uh, it's good that they're filming this because 
I would hate to be going through all this crap and not to be getting it on camera. We went outside and the kind of the exercising continued. And I, I remember at that point, I don't even know if it was tactical. I just became conscious that it was going to happen. Uh, I was in a serious risk of if I carried on um, vomiting, right? Come on, guys. Push yourself. Push yourself. Be somebody. <laughs> and I think in a weird way, I thought, this is going to show Sarge, right? Like, if I'm going to keep going. And, and once I sort of vomit copiously all over, all over the place, like, he's going to feel bad. Like, I can almost shame him. And then he's going to somehow, I'll prove a point. So I just, I gave everything I could to this running exercise that was the last exercise. And I ran back and I remember kind of bending over and, you know, losing my breakfast and and Sarge looked at me and he said that ain't nothing you ain't done nothing blow chunks as if to say like you know what even your vomit is not manly even your your attempts to uh, you know discharge the contents of your stomach leave a whole lot to be desired you vomit like a little wuss, you know. One wonders, in a, in a world in which there's so much theatre and a refusal to acknowledge the theatrical or the semi-fictional aspects, whether they were playing up to the camera in doing that. Later I found out that, in some ways, this was just business as usual at the power plant and that vomiting during training was a more or less daily phenomenon. And, in a sense, he wasn't treating me any differently than any other wrestler who trains there. But later on, I heard from some of the other wrestlers that they really appreciated what I'd done, oddly enough, and they felt that I'd shown a lot of heart and a lot of commitment. So that was, that was one saving grace. Louis Theroux telling us about the craziest day of his entire career. His film, My Scientology Movie, is out now in theaters. Make sure and check it out. Season two of his great show, Weird Weekends, is on Netflix now. Every week, we like to wrap things up on Bullseye with a culture recommendation from me. It's the outshot. I saw John Wick 2 on a bleary-eyed Tuesday morning. I was at a movie theater down the street from my house where the movies cost six bucks. Boy, did I love it. It is the simplest, clearest, most thrilling movie I've seen in years. Seriously, I can tell you the plot of John Wick 2. Right now, it will not ruin anything about the movie for you. So I, I'm going to I, I'm going to talk fast, but understand, only about four things happen in the movie. John Wick is a retired super assassin, played by Keanu Reeves, but then this creepo comes to his house and he calls in a favor that Keanu's obligated to oblige because of assassin politeness. Kill my sister so I can be the boss of the creepos, says the creepo. So then John Wick is unretired because that is the code of the assassins. He goes and he kills the sister, but then the creepo's bad guys try to kill John Wick. Then John Wick kills all those dudes, all of them. But the creepo still wants to kill John Wick, so he takes out a contract on him with all the super assassins in the entire whole world, including a sumo dude, and they all try to kill him, but he kills all of them. All of them. One after the other. Well, he's on his way out of a subway station. Anyway, John Wick finally gets around to killing the creepo, and that is pretty much all of the plot of the movie. Although there is, to be fair, a little bit of other stuff about assassin politeness. Very concerned with assassin politeness. Now, in most action movies, they dole out this kind of plot in like an hour of dialogue. All John Wick would be doing the entire time is explaining everything that he's doing to everyone. He'd have a sidekick specifically so that there'd be somebody for him to turn to and explain stuff. And up front, there'd be all these moments of heroism and family to remind you that John Wick is the good guy. And there'd be a whole part where he explains all of his feelings and it'd be super dumb and super boring. Like, I'll give you an example. Did you see Fast and Furious 5? I did. Bunch of cool stuff happens. And then there's this awful high school acting class scene where two dudes are talking about how much they miss their dads. It is brutal. John Wick 2 is basically an experiment in how little of that you can have in a movie. How little plot talking can you have and still have believable reasons to kill, like, 
a thousand dudes. It's basically an art film. The art is what is the most beautiful, surprising violence we can create? Hall of Mirrors? Yeah, we got one. Crazy car chases? Absolutely. Getting attacked by a sumo dude? Sure thing, boss. It's like someone put Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and a big gun into a stock pot and boiled off all the talking. Pretty much the only talking part is this one sequence with Lawrence Fishburne, where Lawrence Fishburne is basically a super assassin version of Fagin from Oliver Twist with a loyal army of bums. And my man Larry Fishburne legitimately deserves an Oscar for being amazing. Like Nicolas Cage-level compelling insanity. John Wick 2 is an action film without the gristle. He just tell you the rules. He has to live by his code. He has to kill certain dudes. Certain dudes are trying to kill him. And those things are going to interact in the most amazing way that some action movie genius dude can figure out. Those rules, they, they just push over that first domino in a spectacular cascade. There's no pause for jibber-jabber, just a couple sentences, and all the dominoes fall and twists and curves and forms you never expected. Let me put it another way. Think of it as a dance production starring Keanu Reeves' cheekbones. Mesmerizing flashing lights and strobing colors, swirling surprises around every turn, plus Lawrence Fishburne, King of the Hobos. Oscar caliber, I promise you. John Wick 2, best six bucks I've spent this month. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking beautiful MacArthur Park in Los Angeles, California. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our producer is Kevin Ferguson, with help from Christian Duenas. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We're sharing interviews, giving you sneak previews of upcoming Bullseye guests, and even sharing a little bit of uh, dumb, funny stuff from the Internet. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 